This is Pastor Aaron at Oasis Baptist Church, and thank you for checking us out online. I pray that this message is an encouragement to you. We'll see that today. You see, the law taught works. We mentioned last week that the purpose of the law was to be a schoolmaster, to show Israel that their need of a Savior, to show Israel that they were not perfect. So it taught what works was, but the gospel shows the simple truth that Christ alone is enough. Let me say that again. Christ alone is enough, period. I, I, I'm so thankful that it's not incumbent upon me to do good thing after good thing after good thing to, to have salvation in the Lord. Salvation is a free gift. It's not a work that I have to possess. Verses 11 and 12, we talked about how he, Paul, removes himself from the equation in regards to the source of the gospel but in verses 13, 14, 15, 16, throughout the rest of the chapter, we're going to take the next this week and next week to talk about His transformed life. The title today is A Transformed Life, Part 1. And so um, I've never done this before, but we're going to go through verses 13, 14, 15, and the first part of verse 16. Yes, we cut the verse 16 in half, and we'll start the rest of verse 16 next week um, as we look at a transformed life part two. And so with verses 13 on, Paul reiterates, and the reason I say reiterates is because he's been already invested in the church of Galatia. To me, if Paul's been plugged in, they already know the story of his conversion with Christ. They already know the story, and I'm assuming this, they already know the story of how Paul came to a saving knowledge of the gospel versus the, the, uh, the law that he was reared in. And so this will reiterate the story of his own repentance, and he will lay down evidences of his transformation by Christ. Transformation is defined this way. It is the act or an operation of changing the form of external appearance. Uh, one of the definitions that popped out to me within that was that of metamorphosis, change of form in insects as from a caterpillar to a butterfly. Now, I'm going to date myself here. Um, how many of you remember or know the animated classic movie, A Bug's Life? You guys know what I'm talking about? Thank you. All right. We have a lot of parents with kids in here. What was the name of the slightly weight-challenged caterpillar? What was his name? Heimlich. Yes, he was, my name is Heimlich, and he was just this big, huge caterpillar. The very end of the movie, he goes into this cocoon, and he breaks out of it, and he's like, yes, I'm a beautiful butterfly, and his wings are like that tiny. And uh, so I think of metamorphosis, I think of transformation, I think of Heimlich, I think of the, the caterpillar going to the butterfly. I go even farther back here. Uh, I grew up watching Transformers, and I'm not talking about like the recent movies. I'm talking about the cartoons, and I'm talking about the ones where they were like, or Beast Wars was an offshoot of Transformers. There was, I mean, I mean, every Saturday morning, every morning before school, I'm watching some type of Transformers. And literally, they go from one thing, animal, car, truck, to this massive robot fighting aliens, Decepticons, whatever it is. That was my childhood. So when I think of transformation and the idea of changing the form or this definition in theology, transformation means a change of heart in man by which his disposition, disposition excuse me, and temper are conformed to the divine image, a change from enmity to holiness and love, a change from a life in sin to a life that is redeemed by the grace and the power of Christ alone. The main point of the message here this morning is simply this. The true gospel message is Christ alone. We saw that last week. But today we're going to remember our past condition and we'll admit that our knowledge isn't enough. 
God's grace is enough. Our knowledge isn't enough. God's grace is enough. So, last week I went a little long because I got up here really early and I'm looking at the clock. It's like 12 o'clock. And then when I went to edit the video for the sermon, I was like, I preached for a solid 57 minutes. So, I apologize. We're going to get out today at 1130. No, I'm kidding. Um, With that being said, um, there was just so much last week that I wanted to share, but this week um, we're going to kind of go through the first and the second point a little more quickly and then uh, spend some time in the third point as we look at Paul's transformation. So as this, these few verses lay out, Paul is laying the defense again, not only of his apostleship, but also of the redeeming work that Christ did in him. Paul kind of talks a little bit about um, almost like he does three different time periods. He talks about proofs of his pre-conversion, He talks about the proof of his conversion, and then next week we're going to look at some of the evidences of his conversion. So the first two points uh, this morning talk about his past. Uh, The first point is simply this, Paul's lifestyle. Right there in verse 13, he says this, "'For ye have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it.'" You see, Paul, who at this point, as he's reaching into his past, let's refer to him as Saul the Pharisee. Saul the Pharisee was, had a reputation that preceded him. He was not one that was well-liked by the early church. Um, we'll, we'll talk a little bit here and a little bit about his education background and whatnot and how he was reared, but because of his passion to enforce the law, people heard of his reputation. People heard of the actions and the things that he did. We'll, we'll see later that he literally would drag Christians. He would go door to door and drag Christians from their house into jail for simply preaching that Jesus Christ is enough. Paul was reared in the law. Uh, excuse me, Saul was reared in the law, and that was his, his passion. So he says right off the top that you've heard of my conversation. You, he had a reputation that preceded him. Um, I, I, I go back to, uh, uh, have you ever heard of someone that had a reputation that preceded them, but then when you met them, it was nowhere close to what you heard before? Have you heard that, had that happen before? That usually happens with athletes on my favorite sports teams. And so they're like, they're really good, and then when they get to the team, they just, they're not good. LeBron James. Anyways, um, <laughs> it's, a new, it's a new year, we have a new team, so... We'll return to glory. And so here we go. All right, so uh, Paul's reputation um, is one where it was heard of. His conversation uh, literally means the word there is also translated so many other times as lifestyle. So Paul says, look, you've known my past. Uh, Church of Galatia, you've known my lifestyle. You know my former way of life. He was formerly known as Saul the Pharisee, the great persecutor of the church. His, his past actions were over the top. The idea there of beyond measure literally means he was excessive uh, with um, how he proceeded in literally trying to, one commentator said it this way, Paul literally tried to destroy the church in its infancy before it can explode worldwide. That was one of the ways that the devil in his way used Saul before his conversion to Christ. So his past actions were over the top. The, the, the word persecuted, and, and I want to define this because um, I want us to understand 
there's so many times today that I've heard a Christian, and I, myself has done this, so I'm just as guilty as this. There's so many times today if, if someone disagrees with us or, or something is like not said and that like goes against the Word of God, we as Christians, myself included, are too quickly to throw out the word, you're persecuting me. And, and I, want, I, want you to reason, I want you to realize the, realize the reason why I say we do that too quickly, because I feel like we don't really understand the true essence of what persecution was. And so in Webster's 1828 Dictionary, he defines persecution as harassed by troubles or punishments, unjustly inflicted, particularly for religious opinions. We're going to get to uh, Saul's actions here in a second, but he literally was going door to door, and simply because you didn't obey the law, which taught works, and because you preached that Christ was alone, he literally would drag you out of your home and take you to jail. Now, I don't matter about you, but this past weekend, we had the 4th of July, we celebrated America, we celebrated Independence Day, and, and don't get me wrong, I am patriotic to the core, um, but sometimes as Christians, when things happen on a national scale or even a global scale, and, and it may go against exactly what the Word of God says, look, it may even be the law of the land may go against what the very Word of God says. Sometimes we get so quickly to say, oh, because that is this or that person says that, I'm being persecuted. Um, <clears throat> I'm sorry, but have you been dragged out of your home this week and gone to jail? I don't think so. Of course, if I had asked that question and people weren't here, they'd be in jail right now. But, um, but we, haven't been, we, we haven't suffered those types of persecutions. He, um, it goes on to say that obviously his actions were over the top. He tried to destroy the church. In Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, um, it says this, And Saul was consenting unto his death, and at that time there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house, inhaling or dragging men and women, committed them into prison. At the end of chapter 7, uh, Saul's kind of introduced to us on the scene as this religious kind of like young up-and-comer. He's like the, uh, the contender, if you will. And at the stoning of Stephen, Stephen preaches Christ alone, not works, not the law. And the Jews literally took stones and they literally killed Stephen for what he did. So what was Saul's job? Um, we see this later on that Saul was standing there and the, the, the accusers, the rock throwers, the people that were ready to stone Stephen, what did Saul do? He watched their clothes. And he was just watching their clothes and kind of like a security guard, if you will, like I'll be the check-in for the lost and found. I'll watch your clothes as you go and, and kill Stephen. So he oversees this. And then right in the chapter eight, Paul, it says Paul consented. Paul approved of this death. And there was this great persecution where they're literally... Christians were scattered all over Judea and Samaria, and Saul made havoc. He literally went house to house, dragging the scattered members of the early church and threw them into prison. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful that I don't experience that type of persecution today. But at the same time, I'm cautious because I don't want necessarily me and someone else to disagree and then me fall back on the easy mechanism of, oh, you're persecuting me. How many of you agree with your own family? Exactly. I love my wife, but there's times where she disagrees. I mean, I disagree with her. Um, but uh, we're, we, we, we love each other. You know, the Bible says we're one flesh, but yet we have disagreements. And so with that being said, um, 
when it comes to this idea of his lifestyle, Paul is laying down the proof of what he did to show the proof of his transformation. So we may disagree, that doesn't mean we hate each other. We may disagree, that doesn't mean we're being persecuted. But in this sense, Saul literally, and I'm going to use the word Saul and Paul interchangeable, so if I say Saul, I'm talking about the past. Um, if I say Paul, obviously I'm talking about his, his present state and future. And so Saul literally was killing people in the church, bringing them into prison, overseeing the stoning of Stephen, and committing people in the prison. So I want you guys to catch this thought. If God can transform this vile man Saul into Paul, because we're, Paul's kind of reflecting, he's talking about what had already had happened. If God can transform this vile man Saul, couldn't he transform anyone? Literally, literally. If God can take the persecutor of the church, now I want to get serious here. We live in 2019. One of the things, the conversations and I don't say this to scare you, but one of the conversations that church leadership teams and security teams have to take into consideration is external threats to the church. You know, there's a reason why we have security guys in the parking lot and in the lobby um, as a buffer, if you will, from our children and from us and whatnot. You see, could you imagine today Saul just storming through the door and saying, all right, all of you, you're arrested. Let's go down, downtown. We're going to Clark County Detention Center. You're going to jail simply because you're not following the law and you're preaching Christ and Christ alone. And so if God can transform this man, God really, I mean, God can do anything. We know that. But in 1 Timothy, the latter part of verse, 1 Timothy 1.15 um, says this, that Christ came, <clears throat> that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and Paul would say this, of whom I am chief. Now, this is an expression. Paul's not saying I'm the biggest sinner there is. I'm sure we can go through our life and say there's times where I kind of messed up and, and did worse than Paul. But Paul laid the groundwork saying, hey, look, I'm the worst. I am the chief. And if Christ can come in the world to save me, he could save anyone. In a courtroom setting, in the same case being tried, a prosecutor doesn't usually switch sides and become the defense attorney, right? If that was the case, you're firing your lawyer. You're like, wait a second, what, what's going on? See, in, in a court case, in a courtroom, that doesn't happen. And with this transformation that we're about to see a little later on in this message, it literally looks just like that. So having said that, Paul looks at his past lifestyle. He's laying the groundwork of... Uh, in a way, retraining the church of Galatia of this is why we don't add works to salvation. It's in Christ and Christ alone. It's nothing that we can do. But yet, one of the thoughts that popped in my head this morning is if we remember our past lifestyle like Paul's laying out here, why do we continue in sin sometimes as Christians? Romans 6, 1 and 2, Paul says this, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we that are dead in sin live any longer therein? We're going to see here in a few, Paul's being broken. And yet he says, I remember my past. I remember who I persecuted. I remember um, how over the top I was. But yet he says later on, or earlier in Romans that, hey, because of the sin we have, we're not going to continue. And if we're a Christian, if we have accepted Christ, if we've been transformed, we're not going to continue in sin. 
I went to camp as a teenager with several different churches. I grew up at Liberty Baptist, and then we went to a few other churches and then came back to Liberty. And some of the other churches we went to, one of the things that blew my mind, there was a church, and I won't say who they were or where they're from, but they had this belief that salvation was your get-out-of-hell-free card. I got my fire insurance. I'm good. And then they went as far as to say, we can do whatever we want. We're going to heaven. And I'm sitting there scratching my head like, that's not the way I was brought up. And then, I mean, they're like, come on, you can have fun, you can do this. I'm like, no, because why do you, this is my question, my thought, like, why do you believe Christ for salvation, but then you ignore all the other principles of how to live a holy and separated life? And, and so what Paul here is saying in Romans is, why would we continue in sin? God forbid. Not only did Paul reference his past lifestyle, that was our first point before his conversion, but he also referenced his past education. Look at verse 14. This verse is also a pre-conversion proof. Paul's education, verse 14. And he said, And profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in mine own nation, being exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. You see, Saul excelled in the knowledge of the law. The word profited literally means to make progress, to become proficient in a religion. Um, it, or the word profited also gives this idea of advancing, which literally means to chop ahead, as in blazing a trail through a forest. Saul kept on blazing his trail through Judaism, which meant cutting down anything in his path, such as Jewish Christians, who in his mind were arch-traitors to the ancestral traditions of the fathers. You see, he, could, he didn't see this blend. He, he, Saul was so ingrained in the Jewish law and the, in the, the upbringing in the rabbinic schools that he saw any type of blend of this new salvation by grace through faith alone and the fact that Jesus was enough. He saw that as, as a fake, as, as a threat, as, as a... Uh, something that's going to go against the traditions of his father. So not only did he excel in the knowledge of the law, but he also progressed past those his own age. He was the top of his class, so to speak. Um, I was talking with some people, I think it was yesterday, um, I made the joke that, yeah, I was the valedictorian in my high school graduating class of three people. My GPA was a 3.4. So I'm talking, we're talking, and I forgot who we were talking to, some friends. I said, yeah, I go to graduation, and I asked the principal, hey, principal, uh, uh, sure, how come I don't get like a sash? This says valedictorian. He said, your GPA wasn't high enough. And I'm like, oh, okay. Um, I, wouldn't have been I wouldn't have been valedictorian if someone else didn't get kicked out a few weeks before. But either way, I was the top of the class. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean I was the smartest and brightest. I just kind of fell there by default. And uh, my mom was all the happy for it because I remember a conversation one day where I'm like, Mom, I don't want to be the straight-A student valedictorian. I just want to be average. You ever have one of those conversations with a parent where they don't physically do it, but when you say something so dumb, that they just reach out metaphorically and just slap you across the face. That was, that was the conversation. My mom looked at me like, uh. So um, she got her valedictorian. It was only a 3.4 GPA. But either way, um, Saul was the top of his class. He progressed past those his own age. He progressed past his peers in the instruction of the law. <clears throat> and it says there in verse 14, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my father. Zealous, literally, warmly engaged or ardent in a pursuit of, of an object 
We see this in sports. We see this in life. We see this in the corporate world. People trying to climb the corporate ladder, if you will, that they'll do everything they can to, what's, what's the expression? It's a dog-eat-dog world. That They'll step on people. They get up the corporate ladder saying, sorry, you lose. I'm going to be the VP. I'm going to be this. That idea of zealousness is like Paul climbing up this ladder. And, and, and I had a conversation this past week with Mike as we were sitting in the office discussing this passage. I often wonder how high in the Jewish ranks Saul would have gotten if it wasn't for the intervention of God? Like, would he have been the chief priest? Would he have been on the Sanhedrin, if you will? Would he have been like the top dog? He was flying up the ranks. Excuse me, my microphone's falling off. Um, he was flying up the ranks. He was zealous. He was, the traditions of his fathers literally equals that of the law. Few Jews matched his passion for his religion and his intolerance for the truth about Jesus Christ. See, Paul saw Christ as, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a poison, if you will, to the law. Saul was zealous for the law, but Paul was zealous for the grace of God. So we're going to see that transition. Paul was convinced the traditions, or Saul at the time, was convinced that the traditions or the law he was reared in was the only right way. I, I, that quote came from a commentator, and when I read that, I was like, what? Uh, because then I sat back and thought this. I'm like, have you ever discovered a truth from Scripture as a Christian in your teenage or your, your, your adult years where you see this truth from Scripture, and then you read it, and then you see it come to life, and you see what it means, and you understand the context, you understand the author, the audience, and everything, and then you start to see the interpretation, and then it doesn't exactly line up with what you have been taught your entire life. <gasps> Does that mean my pastor is wrong? No, we're never, no, I'm kidding. Uh, uh, no, that was a realization I had in college. When I got to the point of studying the Bible for me, not because pastor, youth pastor said so or my parents said so, or because a lot of times my faith became a defense of what other people told me to say. When it became my own faith, I mean, I had a relationship with Christ. I was saved at a young age. I knew I was on my way to heaven, and I knew I was redeemed. But yet the study, if you will, the discipleship aspect, that didn't become mine until later on in life. And there were times where I would read something, and I'm like, that's not what the Bible says. And then I go back to my youth pastor and say, hey, I have a question about this passage. And, I, and I'll be humble enough to admit this. There were some times where I was reading it wrong. And there were some times where I wasn't seeing the full picture. And there were some times where he said, my youth pastor said, you know what? I see your point. I don't agree with it that way, but... You, he basically said it was a minor issue. It wasn't a major issue like the salvation when it comes to those core doctrines. He said some people, some good men differ on that. But Paul was convinced that the traditions, Saul was convinced the traditions he grew up was the only right way. He gives proof here that his transformation, proof of his transformation, that the knowledge of man that he received in these rabbinic schools misled him until he encountered the truth of Christ. John R. Stott says this, now, a man in that mental and emotional state is in no mood to change his mind or even have it changed for him by men. Only God could reach out, could, excuse me, only God, talking of Paul, can reach him, and God did. You see, have you, uh, men talking to men, you ever been so like adamant, like, yeah, I'm right, I know I'm right, I know I'm right, this is what I, I've done, da, da, da. I Googled it, I know I'm right, and then next thing you know, you find out a few minutes later that you're actually wrong, and then you feel this small, and then you have to swallow the pill called pride and then admit, I was wrong. There have been times where 
I've been wrong. And there have been times where I, and then I'm the type of person that if I'm wrong, I just beat myself up. Like, I'm just like, come on, Dan, don't be so dumb, you know, and, and research it and study it and do it more. And so with what he's saying here is that as men, as times, and as people in general, we can get so ingrained in what we think is right. But as, as John Stott says this with the case of Paul, only God could reach in and change Paul's heart, Saul's heart. And so Paul references his past lifestyle, his past education before conversion. Now let's look into Paul's transformation, the third point. I said we'd go quickly through the first two and spend a little bit of time here in this last point. Paul's transformation, verse 15, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by His grace to reveal His Son in me, that I might preach Him among the heathen. You remember earlier last week how I said when Paul was defending the source of his apostleship and the source of the gospel, how he removed himself from the equation? Well, now Paul, in, in, in these few verses, reinserts himself in the example as an illustration of this is what God did in my life. Last week we made the statement that Paul's biography is our biography when it comes to transformation in Christ. And so that literally means the story that we're reading right now, we can put ourselves in that very story. Where was I in this situation? Where was that? And so as we get into verses 15 and the first part of verse 16, um, Paul literally places all the action of transformation, salvation, in Christ's actions alone. <coughs> the, these verses are not on the screen, but if you'd like to turn to Acts chapter 9, I'm going to spend a few minutes there um, kind of highlighting the actual conversion um, of Paul as he was on the road to Damascus. Right off the bat in verse 1 in Acts chapter 9, as we're looking at Paul's transformation, um, it says here, And Saul yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues that if he found any of, some translations call it the way. Before Christians were called Christians at Antioch, they were called followers of the way, the way of Christ. And so Paul says, if I find any of the way, whether they be men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he says, hey, I'm going to go to the chief priest, the high priest, and say, hey, I'm going to go to Damascus. I need some letters. I, letters were like commands of authority, seal of approval, that I'm going to go and I'm going to find some Christians in Damascus. And if I find any Christian Jews that are, that are replacing the law with the message of Christ and Christ alone, we're going to bring them back and we're going to throw them into jail. And verse 3, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly... There shined round about him a light from heaven, and Saul fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? I want to stop right there. Paul literally falls to the earth, light shining around him. Like, there's light here, but it was brighter. Um, and literally, he hears a voice from heaven saying, Saul, Saul, called about by name, not once, but twice. That's kind of a pattern when God refers to people in Scripture. Look at Samuel in the conversion where he's like laying in bed and he's like, Samuel, Samuel. And he runs to Eli. Eli, are you calling me? No, I'm not calling you. Go back to bed. So God is literally calling Saul out and he asks a question, why persecutest me? Can you imagine if you're instilled in the law, the law of Moses, the God of Jehovah, and you're walking down the road and not only do you see a light, but then you hear audibly the voice of God. At this point, I'm sitting there going, if I was Saul, everything I believed up until that point meant nothing. Like, I'm literally 
Shekinah glory light in my face, literally hearing the voice of God calling me out, saying, why are you persecuting me? Saul was going to Damascus to find some Christians, round them up and throw them in jail. God intervenes. And can I tell you something? I'm so thankful that God intervened in my life. I'm so thankful that God intervened in our life. Our road to Damascus experience, I promise you, looks different from each and every one of us. Light shines about him. He fell to the earth. He heard the voice saying, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And when he said, who art thou, Lord? Like, so he actually used the word Lord. Like, who are you, God? Saul had an idea of who he was speaking to. And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest, persecutest, if, (laughs) that's a tough word. Um, It is hard for thee to kick, is it hard, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks, And trembling and astonished said, Lord, what will you have me do? You see, when God comes to our life and shows us our need of salvation, if our heart is broken, gracefully broken, and the realization of our actions, our beliefs, our education is simply not enough to have the grace to justify salvation, once we get to that moment, that come-to-face moment with Jesus, if you will, once we have that moment, All bets are off. And the desire is not, hey, I'm going to Damascus to round up Christians and throw them in jail. The desire is now, God, what what do you want me to do? My plans are now your plans. Your plans are now my plans. God, what will you have me do? The Lord said unto him, Arise and go into this city, and it shall be told of thee, what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but they didn't see any man. And Saul, verse 8, arose from the earth, and when his eyes were open, he saw no man, because the light was so bright and so blinding, but they led him, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And skipping ahead to verse 17, Ananias uh, was instructed to go and find this Saul of Tarshish and Ananias, like the church of Galatia. Ananias knew Saul's reputation. Ananias is like, God, you want me to go get the killer, the Christian persecutor? (coughs) And Ananias eventually uh, went and and went his way and entered in the house, verse 17, and he put his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord even Jesus that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, he sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. In verse 13, excuse me, 18, and immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he had received sight forwith and arose and then was baptized. See, Ananias came to Paul, and it's like the blinders came off of, of Saul's eyes, and he was then baptized. I want you to realize something. Ananias, right here in this passage, does not go through Paul and say, Paul, you're a sinner, you're this, you need to pray and ask Jesus to be your Savior. No, Paul says, look, God came to you, and you had a choice to come to this house and follow the city. A lot of times people get in the debate of, is salvation free will? Is it our choice? I believe firmly, wholeheartedly, that it's God that compels us to salvation, but it's us that chooses rather or not to accept it. Paul had a choice whether or not to get up the road and go into the city. Paul had a choice whether or not to listen to that of Ananias. But literally, his eyes were opened. He received sight. He was then baptized. And later on, he receives meat. He strengthened certain days. There was disciples there in verse 20. And straightway, he preached Christ in the synagogues that he, Christ, is the Son of God. 
it's kind of interesting. It wasn't synagogues, the place where the Jewish leaders, that's the temples, if you will. That's their church building. The very man who was hunting down Jewish Christians that believed in Christ is now going back to his former place of employment and saying, it's Christ and it's Christ alone. I don't know about you, but just that encounter, that story right there is enough to tell me that, yes, God's power is real. I don't know where you guys were Friday when the the earthquake happened. We were sitting at the Houston's house and we were playing a little bit of a game night and uh, Kenny was sitting on the floor right next to me and I'm sitting on the couch and I feel this like, whoa. And then I'm sitting there going like, did I eat something funny? Like, what's going on? Um, and, then I'm, and then I feel the floor because Kenny, like we're playing a game, we're yelling, we're having fun. And, and Kenny's like, y'all feel that? And then I feel the floor and I feel the ground move. And then I sit up and I look at the, the light overneath, over the uh, table and I see the light moving. And then as I see the light moving, I'm moving. And I'm like, I'm on a boat. That's what I felt like. Uh, obviously, it wasn't as violent and, and, and uh, um, in social media. We just had fun with it. Uh, it just exploded into a joke. But at the same time, I sat back and I, just re- I was thinking about it. Like, the power of God. Think about that for a second. The power of God can make two tectonic plates shift and trip 150 miles away from Las Vegas. And we can literally feel the entire earth move. I had no idea there was an earthquake on July 4th. I was standing up and the fireworks moved. If the ground shook, I had no idea. Uh, somebody made a great joke. Uh, that's because the solid foundation at the church, you know, built on the rock of God. And I'm like, I'm like, yeah, yeah. And then I found out later that night on the news that one of the seven fault lines in Las Vegas is right here. So we may have a church split, just not the kind you're talking about. Um, so that being the case, um, no, I, I said church split, my bad. So... Thinking about the power of God in something as simple as moving an earthquake. You know, I was looking for a way to incorporate earthquake. I'm glad I found it. Um, and so, uh, but when it looks, when you look at the power of God, Saul was so bent, zealous, loved, loved law. He ingrained it. In, it was every part of him. And he was going to, he got letters. Like, what other, what other, like, Hebrew priest, if you will, or religious scholar is going to go to the high priest and say, hey, let me go to Damascus and kind of cleanse the temple, if you will. I just need some letters of authority saying I can go do that. See, Saul was so zealous, and if it wasn't for the intervention of God asking him why you persecutest me, Saul's eyes would not have been opened. He literally preached Christ in the synagogues. Verse 21 in Acts 9, But all that heard him were amazed and said, Is this not he that destroyed them which called on this name in Jerusalem? Wasn't this the guy killing Christians that preached Christ and Christ alone? And now he believes it? And came hither for that intent that he might bring bound unto the chief priests. In verse 22, Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus proving that this is very Christ. In other words, that Christ is alone. You see, God has a plan for each and every one of us before we were born. Going back to verse 15 in Galatians 1, when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb. You know, God has a plan for our life before the creation of the world ever took place. God knew the plan for my life. God knew the plan for your life. Um, Jeremiah 1.5 says this, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations, as he told Jeremiah. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. You see, Paul was the so-called Saul, the Pharisee, or the separatist. 
but God had separated him to something far better. I want you to realize this idea that the call in Paul's, Saul's life, Paul's life, I believe, is twofold. Number one, he was called to salvation. The salvation call that God reached out and revealed to him that his ways were wrong. Without, I almost fell there. Without salvation, there's no other call for us to hear. So as Saul obeyed and as Saul accepted Christ, now the plan was revealed to him that you're going to be my preacher. You're going to be the one to spread the, the gospel. He was called by grace. God called Saul, Paul, by grace. No human explanation or influence could account for the 180-degree turnaround in Saul's life. He had been the runaway freight train that crushes everything in its path. He lost control of his life and was without restraint. His legalistic zeal had put him on a heading, excuse me, put him on a headlong course of destruction from which no natural force short of death could have deterred him. You see, God was the one that called Paul to salvation. God revealed to Paul his need of salvation. In this, Paul had to acknowledge his past lifestyle was wrong. His past education and zealousness was wrong. The training, the inclination, the heritage of the law that he was trusting in for salvation was not enough. God's grace is enough. God's grace was enough for Paul. God's grace is enough for you. God's grace is enough for me. If you're sitting here today and you're saying, Pastor Dan, you don't know me. You don't know my past. I did X, Y, and Z. And, and uh, were you doing what Saul did? Were you dragging Christians out to jail? I'm not trying to marginalize what we've done wrong in our life, but at the same time, if we haven't accepted Christ as our Savior, if we haven't entered into that relationship, I go back to that earlier statement, if God can transform Saul, God can transform you. And what did Paul say later? I'm the chief of sinners. Obviously, um, I'm sure there, if you were to lay a chart out of who the biggest sinner in the history of the world was, I don't think Saul or Paul would be up there, um, but he would not, maybe top 10. Anyways, um, with that being said, Paul chose to follow Christ. You see, Christ reached out and called Paul, but it was Paul who chose to follow him. God, Christ reaches out to each and every one of us for salvation. The Bible says, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You see, whether it's under the sound of a message like this or whether it's through a, a, a television sermon or a radio sermon or, or you just reading the Word of God, and God's going to come to us and reveal Himself to us and let us know the way the law was intended to let the Jewish nation know that they needed a Savior. God's going to come to us. Paul lays this out in Romans that nobody will be without excuse. Even creation declares the glory of God. And so with that being said, God's going to come to each and every one of us and have an opportunity and say, I want you to be my child. You know the Bible says that God is willing that none should perish, but all that would come to repentance? That's His desire. But yet He still gives us the, the, the unction, the choice for whosoever shall call, for whosoever will. It, there's no discrimination. Anybody can come to the, to the cross of God. But Paul chose to follow Christ. All done in Christ alone and only by the power of God. God's purpose for Paul was to preach. As it said there in verse, excuse me, as it said there in verse, uh, uh, in verse 16, to, he revealed his son in me that I might preach him among the heathen. See, the heathen here is a term referring to anybody outside of the nation of Israel. 
because Paul was reared as a Jewish, as a rabbinic scholar. He was out enforcing the law. Anybody that was not Jewish was referred to as Gentile. He says right here, the first part of 16, as he's recounting his conversion story to that of the, of the Galatians, basically because the Judaizers came into the church of Galatia and brought works right back into the picture. He says, look, I became the purpose of my life, the purpose why God called me number one to salvation was that so I could preach through him, of him. And, and, and going back to Acts chapter 9, that comment, wasn't this the guy who killed people in Jerusalem for believing the very thing he's preaching? That's the power of God. I don't know about you, but I've seen family members, I've seen friends, when they accept Christ as their Savior, you see a transformation. You see that old man fall off. You see fruit. You see things that are like, man, they, they're... One of the most convicting things for me is when I see someone who's a new convert have more passion, more zeal, and more drive, and more fire than someone who's been saved for 25, 27 years of their life. And I'm sitting there saying, God, give me that fire. Give me that passion. And so Paul's purpose was to preach. God revealed Christ to Paul. Paul was to preach Christ to the Jews, but also to the heathen, the Gentiles. The gospel message was for the whole world, as John 3.16 tells us. Paul preached in the synagogue in Damascus, in the very place he used to work daily. Paul preached Christ. Paul preached the grace of Christ. Paul preached the power of Christ. Paul preached <clears throat> that righteousness cannot be attained by the law. And a few months from now, when we eventually get to chapter 2, I'm kidding, um, um, verse 21 Paul says this, I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness came by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. If salvation was by the law, what was the point of the death of Christ on the cross? Paul would say it was pointless if it came to the law. Paul, Saul went from enforcing the law, Paul went to preaching the grace of God. Paul had to escape Damascus, as you look at the end of chapter 9, because the Jews that were there, that were his buddies, his former co-workers, if you will, they're ready to kill him because he, in their eyes, betrayed them. Paul went from one ready to kill Christians to one ready to be killed as a Christian. Let me say that again. Paul went from one ready to kill Christians to be one ready to be killed as a Christian. So what is this transformed life? Paul is talking to the church of Galatia saying, look, it's not works plus Christ. It's Christ and Christ alone. That's the idea of set free, because if the sermon series title was anything other than set free, how would I feel free if my salvation was dependent on my good works? What would I be feeling like? Oh, did I do enough today? I, I don't know. I, I, I'd be confused. I feel guilty. I would feel insufficient. Well, I know all this education. Even Paul said that wasn't enough. But yet, even Paul referenced that not only his education was enough, not only was his past lifestyle not enough, because obviously that he, was, he believed he was right, he was zealously charging forward, he was trying to cleanse the, the Jewish religion of these new Christians that believed in Christ and Christ alone, and he believed what he was right. Until one day, on the road to Damascus, God stopped him, shined a light, fell on his knees, calls him out by name, not once, but twice. You ever have to have your name called out a few times because you're just like not paying attention? Yeah, it's me. Um, not once, but twice. He says, why are you persecuting me, Jesus says. 
don't know about you, some of my favorite passages in the Bible are moments when Jesus or God appears outside of the actual life of Christ. I'm talking about before the birth and after the ascension, the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Outside of that period, when I see Christ come into the picture, those are some of the most awesome stories. I'm just like, whoa! One of my favorites is Daniel and the three Hebrew children in the fire. And King Nebuchadnezzar leans over a pagan king and says, hey, there's a fourth guy in there, and he looks like the son of God. I'm like, how does King Nebuchadnezzar know what Jesus looks like? You know? So Jesus comes to Saul on the road to Damascus, shows him he's in need of a Savior. Saul goes into Damascus, meets with Ananias, and at that moment, Saul believed, and the Holy Spirit indwelled him, and his life was changed. I don't want to speak for granted. I know it's summer, and a lot of people I'm speaking to are familiar. Uh, I know you. You've been here for quite some time, but just coming to church and coming to Oasis doesn't necessarily mean you have a real relationship with God. And I don't say that to scare you. I say that because I want you to understand that as Christians, we ought to be zealous for the gospel of Christ. Paul was zealous for the law and was, was misguided, was wrong. But when he accepted Christ, he became zealous for the gospel. It's no mistake that God used Paul, inspired Paul to pen more than half the books of the New Testament. More than half the books. So we have a guy who used to kill Christians professionally and throw them into jail and persecute them to now, through the inspiration of God, writing a majority of the books that we have in the New Testament of the Bible. So my question for us simply today is this. Paul referenced his past, his lifestyle. He referenced that as a proof of God transformed me. He referenced that in the idea of, look, we, I used to, like, this, Paul wasn't saying, hey, I'm done sinning, I'm not sinning anymore. As Christians, we can still mess up and we can still make mistakes. But what Paul was saying was, in my past, I was in sin, and I'm not going to continue in sin just because I'm saved and I am covered by the grace and the blood of Jesus. No, no, no. He said that my past is what led me to, to realize that my, my past actions put me or excuse me, my past actions put Christ on the cross. My past education wasn't enough knowledge to save me of the law, but his conversion, his transformation was God literally visiting him. So do we hold on to sins that Christ paid for? Do we struggle with that? Do we put too much faith in our own knowledge, our experience, or education of God? Yeah, I know you say that in the Bible, but I went through this, this, and this, and God, in this moment, we may not say this, but this is what our actions do. God, I, I, I know more than you right now. I'll, I'll come to you when I need you. Don't we do that? If we're honest with ourselves, I do that. God, I don't need you right now. I'm just going to tread like a train and, and do it. <clears throat> My last question simply is this. Have you been transformed by the saving message of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because Paul's laying out the evidence of his transformation. He talked about his past pre-conversion. And he's talking about his action of conversion right now. And next week, we're going to look at the evidences of his conversion. But the question I have, do you know for sure today that if you were to die before this service is over, before you leave this, this building, do you know for sure that heaven would be your home? I know an earthquake just happened. And some of the conversations were like, hey, were you scared? Were you scared? And some said, yeah, I was scared. What if that earthquake was a lot worse? Seriously. I'm not trying to be funny. What if that earthquake was a lot worse and there was a lot of damage and there was a lot of people that died? If you 
were to succumb into that earthquake, do you know right now if heaven would be your home? This is my prayer. Before you leave this church, this building today, come talk to me. Come talk to Mike. Come talk to men and women that you see in this church as people you look up to and respect and say, you know what, I don't know for sure if I were to die today, I'd go to heaven. I don't, I've not had a Damascus Road moment. <clears throat> oh, excuse me, that was weird. We'll cut that one out. I was five years old. I had a dream that I was burning in hell. I woke up screaming. I grew up in church. I knew what sin was. I knew where it was going, uh, sending me and whatnot. I woke up from a, a nightmare, if you will, screaming, and I told my mom, Mom, I don't want to die. I don't want to go to hell. And that very moment, she took me into the living room and sat down with an open Bible and shared with me, you don't have to be afraid. She didn't just say a prayer and say, okay, go back to bed. She literally in that moment said to me, the reason you're afraid is because you don't know Jesus as your Savior. And the best way my mom knew how, she walked me through the verses that showed me I need to call and ask Jesus to be my Savior. On January 2nd, 1992, in a little apartment on Jones and Lake Mead, I cried out to God and said, God, save me. You're five years old. Did you understand? Oh, I understood because I was scared of dying and going to hell. My mom today is in heaven. I look forward to the blessed hope that I have. Did I get to see her? But can I tell you something? Seeing my mom and my dad and my grandparents is going to be great, but what's going to be even better is seeing my Savior, Jesus. And not just seeing him, but falling at his feet and worshiping him. It's saying, thank you for dying for me. I'm sorry I put you on a cross. I try not to get emotional. I try to be a tough man, but the grace of God is enough. Jesus Christ is enough in him alone. And that's what Paul is pouring his heart out saying, Galatia, Oasis Baptist Church. Don't trust in yourself. Don't trust in your past. Don't trust in your knowledge and education. Trust in the one and only living God. Again, thank you for checking us out online. If you have never been to one of our services, it would be such an honor to have you as one of our guests. If you have made any decision today, our staff would love to celebrate with you. Would you please email us at info at oasislv.church.